Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now continuing with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization, the completion of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, we are at this particularly beautiful time of the year, uh, of course, both in the nature outside of us, but also on the Jewish liturgical calendar. We're in the season of the highest of the high holidays. In fact, earlier this week, we had the uh, fast day, the Day of Atonement, the holiest and highest Jewish holiday of the year. Um, in which the entire Jewish nation makes atonement for the sins of the Jewish nation and um, implores God for for a favorable providence for the following year. And in the light of Yom Kippur, we're still in the octave of Yom Kippur, if Judaism had octaves, I wanted to go back to one of my favorite patron saints, who is, of course, Edelstein, St. Edelstein, the the uh, Orthodox Jewish woman become philosopher, become Catholic, become Carmelite, and finally became a Catholic saint and uh, patroness of Europe or co-patroness of Europe. So uh, what's her connection with Yom Kippur? Well, it's uh, twofold. First of all, she was born on Yom Kippur Day in 1891. Now, this is, of course, very significant because... Um, what was Yom Kippur? I'll, I'll, I'll read her words uh, describing Yom Kippur. The highest of all the Jewish festivals is the Day of Atonement, that is Yom Kippur, the day when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, making sacrifice to be offered in atonement for himself and all the people after the scapegoat, burdened with the sins of the nation, had been driven into the wilderness. So it was the uh, highest day of the year on the Jewish liturgical calendar. It was the only day of the year, the entire year, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. Nobody entered it at any other point during the year. He entered it that one day to make sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the Jewish nation. And prior to do, doing so, there was another liturgical ceremony where he placed his hands on the head of a goat that was then driven into the wilderness and having transmitted in a kind of liturgical symbolic way the sins of the Jewish nation onto the head of that sacrificial goat. The scapegoat, you know the expression scapegoat, that's where it comes from. Now, what's this got to do with Edith Stein? She um, made herself, let's say, that scapegoat. I don't want to put it too strongly. But uh, we all know that she was martyred at uh, Auschwitz and that, in fact, before her martyrdom, before her death at Auschwitz, um, she kind of saw the writing on the wall with the, you know, things getting worse and worse for the Jews, but she certainly didn't know what was going to happen. But she wrote a spiritual last will and testament about three years before she, she was martyred, in which she said the following. I joyfully accept in advance the death that God has appointed for me, in perfect submission and with joy as being his most holy will. May the Lord accept my life and my death for the atonement of the unbelief of the Jewish people, and that the Lord may be accepted by his own people, and that his kingdom may come in glory. So she's essentially sort of making herself that, that sacrificial lamb, that sacrificial goat, Putting, taking on herself um, this, the sins of the Jewish nation, in particular their lack of faith in Jesus, and um, offering her life for the atonement of the unbelief of the Jewish people, that the Lord may be accepted by his own people, referring to the Jewish people, and that his kingdom may come in glory, which is a reference to the fact that after the Jews enter the church will come the second coming. We know this as Catholics, paragraph 674 of the New Catechism says, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. So that's all kind of wrapped up in her spiritual last will and testament, 
which makes her, in a way, the Yom Kippur sacrificial scapegoat for the sins of uh, the sin of unbelief of the Jewish people. As I said, very interesting that she was born on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, and in fact, her mother, uh, as Edelstein later wrote, always laid great emphasis on this occurrence that her mother, being a, a devout, pious Jewish woman knew that this had a special significance, knew that this meant something very serious and very grave and very special for the future of the child who was born to her on that day on Yom Kippur. Now, let me try to weave together, in some sense, the the three, the three major milestones in Niederstein's life with three... Um, uh, three major symbols of Judaism, let's say, that first of all, she was born on Yom Kippur, and we just talked about the significance of that. And uh, secondly, her baptism, I'll, I'll give a very short run through of her conversion experience and of her life, and then I'll go on to doing some uh, reading from her writings, which are, are very beautiful and very profound. By the way, I must be over-enthusiastic because I forgot to mention, of course, that this is a live call-in program. Um, you're, of course, listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism with your host, me, Roy Shoman. The number here is 866-333-6279, 866-333-6279. And um, I know that I have not been available for calls a couple of, of, of the last few weeks. So anyway, if... if anyone wishes to call with a question or a comment, uh, please feel free to do so at any point during the show. Anyway, so these milestones, these Jewish liturgical milestones, so to speak, in the life of Edith Stein starts with her birth on Yom Kippur. Then when she was uh, baptized, uh, quite a few years later as a young woman, she was baptized on January 1st. Um, I believe it was... Um, in 1921, no, it was, of course, it was January 1st, 1922, because it was January 1st, so it was the first day of 1922, it was January 1st, which in those days was the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus, the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. First of all, it is the feast that celebrated Jesus's uh, sacramental entry into the Jewish people into the Jewish nation, because that's what circumcision was. It was the right of entry into the Jewish people. And it's the day that Edith Stein had her right of entry into the new people of God by her baptism. So it seems to be with quite a bit of significance that she entered the Catholic Church on the same day, so to speak, that Jesus entered the Jewish nation, the, the Jewish church, if you will, the corporate body of Judaism. So that seems to be a, a kind of a, uh, a nailing together of the two destinies. And the other, the other thing, of course, is that Jesus' circumcision was the first blood that he shed. So it was the first blood that he shed for the redemption of mankind. It was, in a sense, the beginning of his offering of himself as a sacrifice for the redemption of mankind and Edith Stein's entry into the Catholic Church was perhaps the beginning of her offering herself as a sacrifice for the unbelief of the Jewish people. So again you see a kind of a beautiful divine poetry at work. And finally before um, before Edith Stein was martyred she wrote very beautifully about offering herself as in Esther. Now, the story of Esther in the Old Testament, uh, many of you probably know, but a few of you probably don't. It's a very, very beautiful picture of what Edith Stein did, because Esther was a, a Jewish woman who interceded with the king for the, uh, that, for the punishment which he had ordained, which would have meant the extermination of the Jews, to be lifted. Um, she interceded with the king to have the Jewish nation pardoned 
from the death sentence, which essentially had been passed on them, and instead raised into a state of um, of dignity and more than rights, actually, a, a state of favoritism in the kingdom. So she interceded with a very powerful king at the risk of her own life, because she expected it quite likely that, that the king would kill her rather than accede to her request. Um, she interceded at the cost of her own life or the risk of her own life with the all-powerful king for the forgiveness of her people, as Edith Stein interceded with her own life with the all-powerful king for the um, salvation, for the sparing or the, the uh, forgiveness of her own people, the Jews. So all all of these sort of three, the, the three primary points of Edith Stein's life, her birth, her baptism, and her martyrdom, are very closely tied to these beautiful Old Testament uh, symbols. So, moving on, um, she lost her faith at the age of 14. She became an atheist, uh, and she went on to uh, study philosophy. She was passionate about philosophy because she wanted to know the truth. In fact, uh, on the occasion of her beatification, Pope John Paul II said, quote, she sought the truth and found God. She sought the truth and found God. And that is always the case. If somebody is simply seeking the truth with their whole heart and without blinders on, God will make himself known to them. And the fullness of the truth, of course, is revealed in the Catholic Church. So, if anyone is seeking God with their whole heart and without refusing to basically hear God when he wants to get through, they will end up in the fountain of truth, which is where we are very blessed to be in the Catholic Church. So anyway, she pursued philosophy. Now, uh, interestingly, the philosophical circles that she was involved in, uh, essentially at university as a young woman uh, in her early 20s, had quite a few number, quite a large number of Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, it seemed to be a little bit of a, um, excuse the pun, pandemic going on. And so in the circle of philosophers that she was in, probably, I, I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants, but four or five out of eight or nine of them were actually Jewish entrants into Christianity. Some of them to the Catholic Church, some of them to Protestantism, and some of them had entered Protestantism on their way to the Catholic Church. In other words, a few years later, they would end up entering the Catholic Church. So Edith Stein was, of course, not, not convinced on the basis of authority by these other people who had become uh, Jews, who had become uh, Christian, had become, you know, uh, followers of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and perhaps even Catholics, but it exposed her. Uh, I'll, I'll read her words. Uh, she's describing now when she listened, followed some lectures by one of these Jews who had become um, a Christian, Max Shaler, uh, actually had become Catholic. This is Edith Stein's words. He was quite full of Catholic ideas at the time, and employed all the brilliance of his spirit and his eloquence to plead them. This was my first encounter with this hitherto un, totally unknown world. It did not lead me as yet to the faith, but it did open for me a region of phenomena which I could then no longer bypass blindly. We see a lot about evangelization here. First of all, he employed, uh, this is Max Shaler, uh, all of the brilliance of his spirit and his eloquence to plead them. In other words, his enthusiasm and his passion for the truth he found spilled out of him in in his, you know, making use of his eloquence and his brilliance. Now, how much do we try to evangelize? In other words, uh, Max Shaler was not standing on the street corner saying, are you saved? Let me tell you how to be saved. He wasn't evangelizing in that sense. But his, his love of the faith, his joy in what he had found in the faith, just bubbled out of him. And it permeated his interaction and the way he saw things and the way he spoke to people about things. And so I think that we see here a example 
of actually the perfect way to evangelize. Then note what Edelstein says, It did not lead me as yet to the faith, but it did open for me a region of phenomena which I could then no longer bypass blindly. Now, this is like really, really, really important in evangelization because we have to present people with phenomena, so to speak, which they cannot bypass blindly. In other words, we have to give them data points, we have to give them pictures, we have to give them events, uh, we have to give them truths, um, even physical truths, which they cannot bypass blindly. In other words, they don't have to accept the Catholic faith, but they have to accept the fact of these phenomena and then figure out what to do with those phenomena and how to interpret them other than through the Catholic faith. For instance, um, it's easy for me because I'm a convert, so the fact of my conversion, the fact of my conversion is a phenomenon. And if somebody, if I talk to somebody about the fact that I converted from Judaism to the Catholic faith, that I converted because I thought I had an experience of God and I thought I had an experience of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the fact of my conversion is the phenomenon my experience of God may not be a true phenomenon in their eyes. They may think that I hallucinated it. My experience with the Blessed Virgin Mary may not have been a true phenomenon in their eyes. They might have thought that I, you know, was dreaming it or I imagined it. But the fact of my conversion is a true phenomenon, and then they have to come to grips with that. So, you know, is it that I'm deluded? Is it that I'm lying? Is it that I'm a hallucinating schizophrenic? Or is it that these things are real? In other words, they're not forced to accept that they're real, but they, they're forced to accept that there is an underlying phenomenon, which, in the words of Edith Stein, they can't pass blindly by. Um, that's one kind of these phenomena. Another kind of these phenomena is our peace and our joy in itself, or our devotion to the Eucharist, or our desire to go to Mass. Um, those are all phenomena that people have to deal with. They may not be overtly miraculous, but but they're real things, nonetheless, that people have to come to grips with. And we have, particularly as Catholics, we have this incredible situation we're in now where we have all of these physical phenomena, such as um, the medical healings, uh, like the ones at Lourdes, the medical miracles, or the Shroud of Turin, or the Eucharistic miracles. And these are also phenomena. They might have other explanations, the fact of the phenomena doesn't mean that somebody has to enter the Catholic Church, but the fact of the phenomena means that they must come to grips with the phenomena one way or another, decide they're fraud, decide that everyone's lying, decide that it's an unknown psychological uh, effect of faith that somehow heals the body, whatever it is. These are phenomena which they cannot pass blindly by, but for that to be the case, they have to be exposed to the phenomena. In other words, they have to be told about them, and that's our job. Anyway, going on with the words of Edelstein, the bars of the rationalist prejudices that I had unconsciously grown up with collapsed, and there standing in front of me was the world of faith. I could see that among the inhabitants were people whom I admired, people with whom I worked with on a day-to-day -day basis that made it worth some serious reflection at the very least. Again, what more can you say? What, what better way to evangelize? Simply seeing these men of faith who she knew were reasonably intelligent, who she respected, who were people that she admired, and people who she worked with on a day-to-day -day basis, if she's going to be operating in good conscience, this, as she said, that required some serious reflection at the very least. Again, we can, we can do that. We can do that with everyone who crosses our path in a, in a real way. In other words, everyone we work with, everyone we see on a day-to-day -day basis, they have to know about our faith for them to know that here are people who don't have two heads who aren't, um, you know, superstitious, whatever, 
who actually take this all very seriously, and that will cause reflection on their part. That will open a door. That door is not going to be opened if we, as Jesus said, hide our light under a bushel and don't let people know what the faith means to us. Don't let people know that how seriously we take this and how much it means to us, how it colors everything in our lives, and how reasonable we think we're being about it. If you want to see the opposite, all you have to do is see what, you know, um, you know, anti-Christian Hollywood celebrities say about Christians with their, you know, with their bitterness and their Bibles and their guns or whatever. The total, you know, contempt of trying to paint people who basically take the Christian faith seriously, you know, as the, um, as the uh, simple-minded people in the movie Deliverance, you know, as these these backwoods yahoos or something. They have to know that intelligent, reasonable people who they actually know and respect and admire take this seriously. Yes, we will be humiliated, but, but really, what difference does that make? It's good for us anyway, being humiliated. Anyway, so she was exposed to these people whom she admired and respected, who reflected the um, that they took the, the Catholic faith very seriously. And not only that, she was struck by the goodness of some of them. Um, when she met Adolf Reinhardt, which who was a very, very... I, I won't go into the names of all of these philosophers, but but he was the number one student of Husserl, who was, who was Edersteins absolute um, mentor in philosophy. When Edersteins met Adolf Reinhardt, she wrote afterwards about it, our first conversation left me very happy and filled with a deep sense of gratitude. Never before could I remember meeting anybody so absolutely good-hearted. Here was something entirely new. It was my first glimpse into a totally new world. So again, if if we can show if we can show love, if we can show kindness, if we can show a peace and an open-heartedness and a good-heartedness, then that will make the faith all that more attractive that will draw people will draw people actually into the faith as Edelstein said it was my first glimpse into a totally new world it's not always easy it's probably never easy but um, think of Mother Teresa I mean even people who had total contempt for the Catholic Church and for the Catholic faith couldn't help having their hearts melted by um, Mother Teresa's warmth and lovingness and good-heartedness and so forth. Again, I didn't know this would be a show on how to evangelize, but I guess it's turning into a show on how to evangelize. Um, but anyway, then, um, oh, I'm almost up to the halfway point in the show, so I'll take a short break of the halfway point, so in about five minutes. By the way, if you do wish to call in, that's a very easy time to call if you call in during the break. Then coming out of the break, I'll just start with the calls before I go back to Edelstein. So the number here again is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Anyway, so, um, okay, great. I've gotten, I've gotten to Edelstein's uh, essentially almost to her doctorate, uh, pretty much to her doctorate. In other words, she's now in her early mid-twenties. She has uh, gotten a doctorate in philosophy. And over the course of um, a couple of years, there were a few more events which were very instrumental in her conversion. And I will describe them in her own words. So the first event happened when she actually was um, in a very busy commercial town in Germany. She was in Frankfurt and with a friend, and they stepped into uh, the cathedral there. And I'll, take, I'll read her words about it. We, ent we went into the cathedral for a few moments, and as we stood there in respectful silence, a woman came in with her shopping basket and knelt down in one of the pews to pray. This was something totally new to me. In the synagogues and Protestant churches I had visited, people simply went to the services. Here, however, 
I saw someone coming straight from the busy marketplace into this empty church as if she were going to have an intimate conversation. It was something I never forgot. So she and her friend had presumably entered the church, uh, probably just to admire the beauty of the stained glass windows or the beauty of the church. I don't know why she stopped in the church. It's a very uh, impressive cathedral. Um, And they just walked in there and they were just standing there and they saw this, you know, elderly, heavily laden woman with her shopping bags come down and kneel in one of the pews to pray. And this was something totally unknown to her. She knew, she obviously went to synagogue as a Jewish woman, especially growing up with her pious mother. And people went into the synagogue to go to the services. And in Protestant churches, you see the same thing, that people went into the church to go to the service. But this was something totally new to her. This woman came into the church. There was no service going on. She knelt down to to pray um, as though she was going to have an intimate conversation. That's all it took, okay? That's all it took was, wow, wow. There's something going on here. There's something going on here. Again, this idea of phenomena, we we have to, we're living in this incredibly, um, I'd like to say atheistic, but in any case, materialistic uh, culture and society. And we have to wake people up to the fact that uh, rationalism, materialism, is actually not the structure of the world. There's another structure far more important underneath it. And the only way to wake them up to this is to confront them with phenomena which the rationalist spirit cannot explain or the rationalist uh, worldview cannot explain. Um, remember in the earlier quote I read from Edith Stein, she said, quote, the bars of the rationalist prejudices I had unconsciously grown up with collapsed. So that's what I'm talking about. You know, we all went to school, we all read the newspaper. Or if we're old enough, we, we remember reading the newspaper. Um, watch the news on TV or whatever. The entire lens through which the world is shown to us and explained to us is a rationalist one, as though nothing existed except what can be measured, what can be felt with your hands, you know, can be examined under a microscope and so forth. And this becomes an unconscious prejudice to the point where you have this um, very destructive philosophy that's actually taken over it's actually taken over our worldview of logical positivism that if something can't essentially be measured and examined and repeated and put under a microscope, it doesn't exist. Okay, so the entire fabric of existence has been redefined to fit this uh, radically materialist, rationalist mold. You know, we have to break through that. We have to break through that. We have to help other people break through that. And uh, just seeing this... Um, pious woman kneel down in the Catholic Church to pray broke through it for Edith Stein. So I have, um, no, I, I will go on for another three minutes and I'll get the, I'll get up to her baptism and, and then I'll uh, take the short music break. Um, so anyway, um, sh- so no, I'll take the break now because I tend to talk so much that Who knows how long it'll take me to get through the next two events. So with that, let me say, you've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Shoman. We are in the octave of Yom Kippur, so to speak. And uh, therefore, I have been telling the story so far of the conversion of a very notable Jewish woman who was born, in fact, on Yom Kippur. And as Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, when the scapegoat would be offered as a sacrifice for the remission of the sins of the Jewish nation. So Edith Stein, born on the Day of Atonement, uh, offered herself as a sacrifice for the remission of the sin of unbelief of the Jewish nation and perish at Auschwitz. And uh, eventually, relatively recently, uh, was made a Catholic, um, first a Catholic blessed, and then finally uh, canonized a saint in 1998. And so anyway, that's what I've been spending today doing. And now we'll go to our musical break. 
And again, if you wish to call during the break, the number is 866-333-6279. And with that, I'll be back in a few moments. Hi, welcome back. Um, you're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And I have been spending today talking about uh, St. Dieter Stein and also relating the events in her early life that led to her conversion, led to her entering the Catholic Church, and using that as a bit of a springboard for talking about where evangelization comes from, or rather where conversion comes from, and the role of evangelization and the nature of evangelization. So um, I am now in her, um, in her mid-twenties, and I will go on to the next event in her life, which was absolutely instrumental. In her own words, later in life, she wrote, that it was um, uh, the event that ultimately led to her conversion to Christianity. So here we go. Edestein had been uh, very good friends with uh, a young philosopher, Adolf Reinach, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, good friends with him. And um, tragically, in 1917, uh, just before the end, actually, of World War I, uh, he uh, had been drafted in the army, and he died in the trenches. And so Edelstein went to Reinach's young widow to console her. They had been recently married. They were very, very much in love. And here she had just lost her, her young, brilliant husband, who, who she loved very, very deeply. Uh, Edelstein went to console her. Edelstein was also very distraught at Reinach's death because... She was a very warm-hearted woman, and she had a tremendous love for this colleague of hers. Um, and so when she went to visit the widow, her name was Anna, she was really struck by the fact that the young widow was less, um, I don't want to say less disturbed, but took the death of her husband with more inner peace than Edelstein was able to um, find uh, in accepting the death of of this young man, and um, uh, she knew, of course, that oh, I keep leaving out the important parts. The Reinarchs actually both were also uh, Jewish converts to Christianity. At this point in time, they were Lutherans, but they well, um, they later um, I, I shouldn't say they. But um, the the widow later entered the Catholic Church. But anyway, so Edelstein could not understand the inner peace that her friend Anna had at the death of Anna's uh, husband. And later she wrote the following. She wrote, quote, This was my first encounter with the cross and with the divine power it imparts to those who bear it. It was the moment when my unbelief collapsed and Christ began to shine his light on me, Christ in the mystery of the cross. So you see, Stein saw the peace of the young widow, knew that it had to do with the young woman's Christianity, knew it had to do somehow with the mystery of Christianity, and as Stein wrote, it was the moment when my unbelief collapsed and Christ began to shine his light on me, Christ in the mystery of the cross. And many years later, near the end of her short life, Edelstein later told a, a Jesuit priest who she was friends with that, that it was witnessing Anna Reinarch's faith in the months after her husband's death that ultimately led to her decision to convert to Christianity. So there's no doubt. There's no doubt. And again, this, this has tremendous... This has a tremendous message for evangelization because Anna was not trying to evangelize Edith Stein. She just let Edith Stein see, see what the effect of Christianity had on her, to see the phenomenon, to go back to that word that, that we started the show with. You know, if, if people of goodwill see the phenomena, they're going to have to deal with that phenomena, with those phenomena. And Edith Stein had to deal with the phenomenon, the phenomenon which she observed in the inner peace and tranquility which Anna had. And of course, Edith Stein realized 
the explanation for that phenomenon had a lot to do with Christianity and a lot to do with the mystery of the cross. So then I will um, go on to the third and final stage that preceded uh, Edersteins baptism. So uh, now we're about four years later and Edersteins is spending a few weeks in the summer at a country estate of another uh, philosopher in this circle of philosophers. Uh, her name was Hedrick Conrad Martius, another pupil of, of uh, Husserl. And uh, Edersteins was left alone in the country house one evening. Her hostess was out to a dinner party to which Edith, wasn't, Edith was not invited. And Edith picked up that evening. She just went into the library of the house looking for something to read. And she picked up uh, St. Teresa of Avila's life, her autobiography. And she read the book through the night. She could not put it down. And later she wrote, When I had finished the book, I said to myself, This is the truth. And then later in life, she said, my longing for truth was a single prayer. That's really at the heart of this. Um, the uh, If one has an earnest longing for truth and is willing to accept where it leads one, it'll always lead one to Christ and in, to the Catholic Church, actually. I know that's not very politically correct to say, but it's true. Another saint, um, Charles de Foucault, um, he was an atheist, he was... I don't want to say he was depraved, but he was very worldly. He was a soldier. He had a mistress and so forth. And um, he felt he had to know the truth. And at one point he prayed, um, God, if you exist, I have to know it. And that was enough for, for him to receive the grace of conversion. And he actually became a, a priest and a, a religious, I believe he became a religious um, and uh, a martyr, actually, and a saint. Um, and all his prayer was, was, God, if you exist, I have to know. There's a woman who's still alive that some of you may be familiar with, uh, Rhonda Chervin, a Jewish convert. And her, um, her prayer that led to her conversion was simply, um, God, if you exist, save my soul, if I have a soul. <laughs> In other words, it, it was a request to know the truth, that's all. And again, it was enough It was enough for her to receive the grace of conversion. So that, I, those are kind of the two legs on which evangelization stand. That on the one hand, people have to be exposed to the phenomena that make them let go of their rationalist prejudice and essentially ask to know the truth. And if they do ask to know the truth, then they will receive the grace of conversion. So um, just to kind of uh, conclude this, this little piece of the story. So Edelstein, of course, was an intellectual and a scholar. And uh, following reading uh, St. Teresa of Avila's book, she bought a Catholic catechism and a Catholic missal and started attending mass in the nearby parish church and essentially teaching herself Catholicism out of the Catechism and the Missal. And then afterwards, she asked the local priest to baptize her. The priest was uh, very highly educated, and he wanted to examine her. And when she asked for baptism, he, uh, he asked her, who has instructed you and for how long? And Edersteins' response was simply, test my knowledge. And she could answer any question that he asked her. And he, she had such a deep theological knowledge that um, he immediately scheduled her for baptism. And he later wrote to his friend, another priest, quote, Yosef, I have here a convert who is far superior to me and puts me to shame with her theological knowledge. You have to help me. So um, that is how she got baptized. And of course, um, as they say, the rest is history. The day she chose for her baptism was January 1st, 1922, the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus. Not a coincidence, since, as I said at the beginning of the show, um, the circumcision of Jesus was the day that Jesus entered the Jewish church, let's say, 
and she chose it to be the day when she, as a Jew, entered Jesus's church, the Catholic church. So I guess, um, I guess that does it for her, um, for her uh, conversion. I will just say, point out or, or say, I don't have time to go through all of her life, but um, when the uh, Hitler came to power, she had to leave her scholarly career and she could finally enter the Carmelites, which she wanted to do immediately upon her baptism. She wanted to enter religious life, but she was told by her spiritual director that she still had work to do in the world. So she, she worked as a, a professor, essentially, for those intervening years, uh, about 12 years. And, and then she entered the Carmelites in 1933 after Hitler came to power. And when she entered the Carmelites, she took the name uh, Teresa Benedicta Cruce. Usually it's translated as Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Teresa, because of Teresa of Avila, who had such a central role in her conversion, uh, Benedicta, because it means blessed, but she did not choose that name meaning blessed of the cross. She chose it meaning blessed by the cross, blessed by the cross. Her motto was, um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of Latin and I'm failing. Um, Holy cross, our only hope, spes unica, uh, ave crux, spes unica, I think. Hail cross, our only hope blessed by the cross. She she embraced the cross. She understood that it's in the cross that the entire meaning of life between birth and death exists. Let me read a quote from a letter of hers that she wrote in 1938. I must tell you that I already brought my religious name with me into the house as a postulant. She had already decided on her religious name. I received it exactly as I requested it, by the cross. I understood the destiny of God's people, which even at that time began to announce itself. I thought that those who recognized it as the cross of Christ had to take it upon themselves in the name of all. Wow. Let me dwell on this a moment. When she entered religious life, remember she was born on Yom Kippur. When she entered religious life, she already felt her destiny as being a sacrificial victim for the atonement of the unbelief of the Jewish people. She had a sense of what was coming. As she said, I understood the destiny of God's people, which even at that time began to announce itself. She saw what was coming. And then she said, I thought that those who recognize it as the cross of Christ had to take it upon themselves in the name of all. So she sees what's about to descend on the Jewish people. She wants to accept her role as, in some sense, a sacrificial victim. She wants to, because she recognizes that what's about to fall on them is the cross of Christ, she wants to bear it as the cross of Christ, not only for herself, but in the name of all, in the name of all of the Jews who perished under the weight of that cross and thereby unite their suffering and their sacrifice with the cross of Christ for the redemption of the, I could say redemption of the world, I could say redemption of the Jewish people. In her last will and testament, she gave a number of clauses to what she was accepting this for, including atonement for the unbelief of the Jewish people and that the Lord may come in glory. So, um, wow. So I'll just go on. I guess I'm, I'm drawing to the uh, end of the hour. So I'll go on with some quotes all along this theme of, of, of her offering herself as the Yom Kippur sacrifice, so to speak. Um, so, uh, she had the following illumination one day during a holy hour at the Carmelite convent. I spoke with the Savior to tell him that I realized it was his cross that was now being laid upon the Jewish people, that the few who understood this 
have the responsibility of carrying it in the name of all, and that I myself was willing to do this if he would only show me how. I left the service with the inner conviction that I had been heard, but as uncertain as ever as to what carrying the cross would mean for me. So again, blessed by the cross, again, she understood that it was Christ's cross that was being laid upon the Jewish people, that most of them didn't understand the responsibility of carrying it. They didn't understand that it was, didn't understand the mystery of the cross. There is no mystery of the cross in Judaism, needless to say. And therefore, the few Jews who did understand the mystery of the cross had the responsibility of carrying the cross in the name of all and that she was willing to do this. And that's exactly what she did. Um, and uh, then uh, uh, just uh, another quote uh, that just repeats this fact that she stated over and over again, that she recognized that the Holocaust that was beginning to happen was in fact the, the, the cross of Christ falling on the Jewish people. So here's another quote. This is a shadow of the cross that falls upon my people. Oh, if only they would realize that is the fulfillment of the curse which my people have called down upon themselves. Now, this is a very politically incorrect, very politically incorrect uh, quote of hers. Um, and I would say that the underlying theology is a little bit, um, it's extremely complex because, because part of the mystery of the cross is that it was Jesus who died on the cross. So the cross is simultaneously a, a curse and a blessing, so to speak, um, that, that it, is, it is by carrying the cross, it's by being victimized by the cross, so to speak, that we bring about the redemption of the world and our own salvation. Um, Jesus was the most favored, blessed, person, right, in all of human history, um, without, you know, obviously he was, he was both, I mean, he was fully divine, but he was also fully human. No one was more beloved by God the Father than Jesus. No one was more blessed by God the Father than Jesus. And no one suffered the cross more than Jesus. So um, the saint after saint has said that you know, the more God, you know, the heavier your cross, the more it shows that God loves you. I think St. Padre Pio is famous for saying that, that, um, you know, a heavy cross, great suffering is a sign that God especially loves you. So the fact that this very heavy cross fell on the Jewish people does not mean that they aren't specially loved by God, because that is, that's what God does to those that he especially loves and that he's given a uh, especially significant role, let's say, in salvation history and in, in redemption. Um, so anyway, so it has to be taken, has to be taken, uh, one has to recognize both sides of the coin to accept the fact that um, the Holocaust was in fact the, the cross falling on the Jewish people. Anyway, um, I think that's probably uh, it's probably it for the mainstream of um, of Edersteins conversion. I will point out something that's kind of neat, which is that um, Edersstein was deported to Auschwitz along with um, the other Catholic Jews of Holland. Um, they were all deported together. Uh, the Nazi rulers of Holland, let's say, the Nazi occupiers of Holland, had said that Jews who had entered the Catholic Church would not be deported along with Jews who hadn't entered the Catholic Church. In other words, the Jews were going to be deported to the extermination camps, but the um, Jews who had entered Christianity, actually, both Protestant Jews and Catholic Jews, would be spared. But then the Bishop of uh, Holland... Uh, the Bishop of Utrecht had a letter read in all of the Catholic parishes throughout Holland, uh, co condemning the uh, Nazi persecution of the Jews. And in retaliation, the next day, the Nazi 
commandant of Holland. Uh, I forgot the the German word for that. Um, Reichs something or other, Reichsleader or something, um, issued the order that all of the Catholic Jews would be deported in retaliation. That part of the story, many people know. Let me read an extract from the letter that was read in the Catholic parishes that resulted in the deportation of the Jews. Dear brethren, when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city before him, he wept over it and said, Oh, if even today you understood the things that make for peace, but now they are concealed from your sight. Let us beseech God to bring about swiftly a just peace in the world and to strengthen the people of Israel so sorely tested in these days, leading them to true redemption in Christ Jesus. I just want to point this out because I think it's unspeakably beautiful that in this letter that was read in all the parishes, that was a plea... Uh, basically a, a, a plea that the Jews be spared from the persecution by the Nazis. He also made it a plea that they receive the grace to follow Jesus Christ. And um, as he said, let us beseech God to bring about swiftly a just peace in the world and to strengthen the people of Israel, leading them to true redemption in Christ Jesus. So, um, I want to close the show with a essentially a prayer, in some sense, for the conversion of the Jews. Um, it is a little bit heartrending to see the beauty of the Jewish devotion, Jewish pra- religious practices, Jewish love of God um, that's expressed during these Jewish high holidays, especially Yom Kippur, and to see what they're being deprived of because they haven't received the grace of coming to know the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So let's close the show with a prayer that the Jewish people to to whom uh, God first revealed himself and to whom Jesus came when he came as the Jewish Messiah might finally, after such a long wait, uh, come to the fullness of the great gift that they brought to the rest of mankind with our Savior, Jesus Christ, and with the sacraments of the Catholic Church, which make him present in our hearts, in our souls, and in our lives in a way that cannot be matched in any other way. So with that, let me thank you for listening. Uh, Say goodbye for now. You've been listening to Roy Shoman on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. It's time to say bye for now. Hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. Oh,